Today I'm excited. We are in week three of our summer series, The Story of Moses. And we've been looking at the life of this just spectacular Old Testament character that we see, but we're bringing it kind of uh, down to real life and trying to humanize them a little bit. I told you uh, over the last couple of weeks my enjoyment with reading, and some of you, I'm excited you've picked up some biographies. You're like, oh, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read that. Like, that's awesome. But uh, what you might not know while I love reading, uh, you know, I love words, is I also tend to waste a lot of time on picture books. I mean, I spend a lot of time looking at art books. That's what I mean. Um, I don't know if you're a picture person at all, but um, I love words, but I also absolutely love pictures. I think, uh, you know, sometimes pictures speak to me. These are some of my favorites that I go back to often. Um, this is Parallel Universe. I don't know if anybody's ever seen this. It's fantastic. Uh, Erger Galactness. I don't know how to say his last name because it's got like extra little marks on it. They're, those aren't in English, but these are great because it's got pictures where it's a Photoshop picture of different things that he makes match, and it just causes you to think a lot. Now, if you don't like thinking, don't get this, but it's very, very awesome. I love this one. Um, I mean, one of my favorites that I really, this is one I ponder all the time, is The Revenge of the Babysat. Okay, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, when Bill Watterson writes, it, it just speaks to my soul. I understand Calvin. He's my, like, my comic book doppelganger. I get him, you know, trouble all over the place. So, uh, any Calvin and Hobbes fans? Okay, good, good. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I do get, you know, uh, this is the, the life of Christ, James Tussaud, um, French painter, and near the end of his life, he just went through, like, an absurd amount of watercolors, and there's some crazy ones in here, like, you don't even think the day that... Uh, the, the dead appear in the temple when Jesus raises from the dead. You're like, no one paints that. Oh, yeah, I did. Um, so there's some real fun ones in here. There's a ton of them. There's like 350 watercolors that I like to look at. Um, so I, I, I love pictures. I get uh, excited by them. I, I enjoy because they speak to me. But this week, uh, I was over um, at, at Becky's house as I was leaving. There was a book that was laying out. And it was this book, and it's simply The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse by Charlie Mackesy. Has anybody heard of this one? Okay, one or two of you. Great, great. So this book was amazing because I borrowed this from her, and I follow Charlie on Instagram, and I followed him for a while, but I've never gotten around to picking up the book. So it really is exactly what you'd expect from a book. It's a book about the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Right? It's about a boy who's kind of lost, who bumps into a mole who likes cake, because um, what mole doesn't like cake, right? And then they meet a fox who is trapped, and the mole kind of frees him. And the fox is very quiet because he's been hurt, and so he's very contemplative. And the horse, as they journey into the horse, happens to be the biggest, most majestic thing they have ever seen, and they're captured by him, and just, or like in awe of him. He didn't like get them, you know. But they're in awe of him. And this book is filled with nothing but sketches and beautiful watercolors. Um, not all of them are watercolors. They're just a lot of pen and ink things. And, and I love that. But this week, I kid you not, I found myself going back to one page. And it just kind of sat with me a lot. It grabbed my heart because of the picture itself and because of the words. And I just went over and over. Here it is. Just so you could see it. Um, I'll put it up there for you. Sometimes, the boy says as he's sitting on the horse, sometimes I think you believe in me more than I do, said the boy. You'll catch up, said the horse. 
in my opinion, this is one of the reasons we need artists. I, I don't know how, and I don't know about you, but I wondered as I looked at this picture over and over and over this week, how Charlie could shape an image and 20 words to reveal one of the biggest spiritual wrestling matches I have in my life. How did he do that? How did he just put something so simple to a page? And I've wondered this week as I've thought about Moses and, and this series, how many of us live our lives if we're actually being honest with ourselves from a place of insecurity? How many of us are told all the time, well, God loves you, God loves you, he's got great plans for you, all that kinds of stuff that we hear, but when we look at the way we live, it clearly demonstrates we do not believe that. We don't. I think we tend to look at ourselves much different than God looks at us. We don't see what God sees. And just like this boy, I love that he's clearly trusting this horse in this picture to carry him, to walk with him, but he still sits there questioning. Isn't that funny? The horse believes in him. Like, I love that. We know that. But they keep communicating to each other. They have to. And this is where I love art because you could tell a story to it. You could start to unpack it yourself. The boy just doesn't get to the place where the horse is and say, oh, you'll catch up. Good, I'm there now. But instead of reprimanding this boy, because I think some of us, if we were to say, sometimes I think you think more of me than I do, we get reprimanded by people telling them, you know, that we get told, here's what you should do better. Here's this. He doesn't coddle him, does he? He doesn't say all the great things about him or all the worst things about him. He just simply reminds him, you'll catch up. I want to do everything I can to keep this image in your mind. So can we put it up on the screen one more time? I would love for you to just keep this image in your mind. And if it helps, go ahead and do like a blink snapshot where you can go, okay? Keep this image in your mind. Keep this image in your mind because it captures, captures the story of Moses today so well. And it's a great reminder that God sees in us what we don't. God sees in us what we don't. And in my head, this could be Moses on the back of God. Let's see how the story of Moses continues. And so if you would, if you have your Bibles with you, um, how many of you brought your Bibles with you? I want to keep encouraging you to do that. Excellent, excellent, I love it. And if you don't have a Bible and need one, I, we would love to give you one. We have some up front. We would just love to give it to you for free if you don't have one. But we'll be in Exodus chapter 3. And if you're online with us and you need a Bible, just let us know. Send us a message and we'll be happy to send you one because this is the most life-changing thing ever, ever. So uh, Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up our story. And you know, this is, as most Hebrews would know this book, we call this the book of Exodus, but they would call this the book of Shemot, the book of names. And we know that as you're turning to Exodus chapter 3, anytime we see a name or something is named, we should pause to pay attention. Because while names don't really mean that much to us all the time, they mean a ton to this culture because they define your past, your present, and your destiny. And when we come across these names, we have to stop. Last week, we came across the name of Moses for the first time, and his name means to lift out. And this was given to him by his Egyptian mother, not his Hebrew mother. And so he has an Egyptian name from Pharaoh's daughter, the princess who adopted him. 
This name that he received to lift out, this separated him immediately because he was now different than the house that he grew up in because he has an Egyptian name. So as a little Hebrew boy, no matter who he's around in the Hebrew nation, his name sets him outside. But because he's Hebrew and he knows that, when he's inside the home of the Pharaoh, he's set aside there because it's just the water boy. They lifted you out of the water. You're not even like one of us. And so Moses, not fitting in in either place, when we don't feel like we have a name, we try to make a name. And so Moses does something and he kind of makes a mistake. He tries to make a name for himself by stepping in with the Hebrews saying, these are my people. And when he sees one Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he goes ahead and takes justice into his own hands and he kills this Egyptian. Does anybody remember what he does with this Egyptian? He buries him. He buries him, and he's like, no one will see my failure here, my, this, this thing that I did wrong. I'm going to bury him. And the next day, he goes back, and he sees two Hebrews fighting, and when he's like, yo, yo, you need, to, you need to stop fighting. Like, get along with each other. And they're like, oh, please, you're not one of us. Who made you judge? Were you going to kill us like you killed that guy? And that's when he hits his uh moment, freaks out, and knows that his life is on the line. He's about 35 to 40 years old at this moment, and he takes off 200 miles across the desert to go to Midian, this new region, and he is completely by himself now and comes across a family to live with, and he meets this family, marries one of the daughters, starts his own family, and as we pick it up in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, There's about 40 more years that have passed. Okay, keep this in mind. 40 more years have passed. So Moses is somewhere in the range of 70, 75, 80 years old. All right? So that's really important to keep in mind. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. So we're entering into this chapter, and Moses has picked up a new job. His new job is what? Shepherding. Oh, we're going to go back and forth, and I promise not to give you any, like, you know, trick questions. Everything will be right there, okay? He's got a new job, and he works for his father-in-law. Everyone's like, ideal thing to do. And so he's like, ah, fine, I'll be the shepherd, I'll tend the flocks. What's really kind of cool about this is when um, the Hebrews moved into Egypt the first time about 400 years ago, they picked a spot that was great for tending sheep, for shepherding, because the Egyptians saw anyone that was a shepherd as so much less than. This was actually one of the worst jobs that you could have, and they would pass this off to the teenagers to say, like, this is your below minimum wage job that we're going to pay you under the table for, okay? Does that make sense? And so now Moses, at 80, finds himself for the last, let's just say, three decades plus, tending sheep. He's tapping into the roots of his very people, and he's good at it. He's really good at it. And this is probably, I'm guessing, not what he thought he'd be doing at 80 when he was growing up, but here he is. This is what he's doing. And he, we read about him being at a place called, some of your Bibles may say Horeb, like Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And here's what this is important to understand, okay? We've got Moses, and he grew up where? He grew up in Egypt. We got that here. He crosses the desert 200 miles to get to Midian. And now Mount Sinai is dead center. He is halfway in between both heritages that he can claim. 
and not know who he is. And it's right in the middle of this spot in the Sinai Peninsula that, that he is going to be on this mountain. And here's what goes down on the mountain. Verse 2, I love this. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. I love this. I love this. Now, it's not the angel that's appearing in the flames that amazes Moses, is it? It's the fact that the bush is not being consumed, that it's not burning up. I am positive that Moses, in his journeys of shepherding, saw tons of bushes spontaneously combust. It's dry, and it's the Middle East, right? And so there it, there it goes. Um, but as quickly as it catches, it's going to be dead and gone. And he's like, oh, my gosh. There are two responses that anyone can have if you see this, right? When you see something abnormal... There's two responses that you have. The first one is you could admire that abnormal thing from afar and say, wow, look at that. I'm going to keep myself and my sheep over here, and we're going to begin to go back home. <laughs> you know, this outside of my comfort zone, that's pretty funky. How many of you, if you see something abnormal, this is your response is to look from afar? Okay. Some of you are lying. I've been with you. I know that you do this. You, you, you distance yourself from me sometimes. You're like, he's too funky. That's right. See, thank you. I love honesty. There's another response. Get closer and try to touch it. How many are there? Okay, some of you. Some of you are like, I don't know. You've got to figure this out. Um, I know who I am. Back in February of 2020, before the pandemic had hit, I had the privilege of flying out to San Diego with my wife, Eileen, and I was going to do a wedding out there. So, we are staying in San Diego, and there's this park called Balboa Park, and they have something I have never seen before, a cactus like park, like a garden, a giant garden of cactus, and not like a little cactus like you're going to buy at Home Depot and be like, look, it's my little succulent tray that I have, like nothing like that. I'm talking like cactus, cactus, massive cacti, if you will. I think that's what you call them, um, but here's what's weird. I am not familiar with cacti, so some of them look different. They didn't look like cacti. I kid you not, they didn't. Um, there, was, there was like a set of them that were all planted, and it looked like they had hair, like they were soft. And my wife is, it's one of the reasons I love her is because without saying a thing, she saw my eyes lock onto it, and she says, Jimmy, don't touch it. It's going to prick you. It's still a cactus. It's in the garden. It's named that way. And so, of course, I'm a great husband, so I started to pet the cactus, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's hairy. It's got hair. It looks soft. And, and it was great. Ah! And I looked at Eileen, and I, and I was like, oh, my gosh. This is what happened. This is what happened right here. She, it, she took a picture of it. I kid you not. It had, it had fur, and then it pricked me. And my wife, who's a nurse, she takes such good care of me by taking a picture before she says, are you okay? Right? Because I was like, it, it pricked me. I was surprised that it pricked me. I couldn't believe that it pricked me. But she took a picture and started laughing at me, still does. When I asked her for this picture before, she giggled, and she's like, I remember that. Why did you do that? I'm like, because I'm the type of guy who's going to resonate with Moses. If you see something abnormal, you see something that doesn't make sense, ooh, that bush is on fire, go touch it. 
(laughs) or get near to it. See what's going on. Nothing about what Moses does in this situation is going to surprise me. And this is the moment that everything is going to change for this man. In verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, I love that. He saw him coming. Moses called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. From what we read in the book of Shemot, the book of names, this is the first time that God has talked to a Hebrew in almost 400 years. Don't miss the first thing that the God, the creator of all the universe says. The first word to his Hebrew people is he uses a name. He uses the name. God knows Moses' Egyptian name. He knows who he is. Moses is seen and known by God, and he knows that from the very first word that's spoken from this bush. And Moses thought the fact that the bush wasn't being consumed was going to be abnormal. Could you imagine that you go to look at it, and now it starts calling your name? Oh, my gosh. And his response is simply, here I am. What do you do in that moment? And what I love about this is this this is the beginning of Moses' friendship with God. This is the moment that he becomes friends with God. And and while it's not really the point of, of the message for today, I think it's so important that here he is on a mountain And this is where his friendship with God begins. And and if you read Deuteronomy with us when we were soaping it, you can get to the end of Deuteronomy and you realize that Moses' story is going to end on a mountain. But most of his life is going to be lived in the desert. Most of Moses' life is lived in the desert, not on the mountains. He has a couple mountaintop experience, but over 120 years, most of it is in the desert And I just need to say, please understand, you cannot expect to live your life with God at a place of mountaintops all the time. That is just not reality. Most of us live life in the desert. We live life trying to survive, and still God is present with us there. We just see him and hear him different on a mountaintop sometimes. But we all come down into the desert, and God is still there. Amen? It's there that he's going to shape us into who we are. But this is Moses' first encounter with God. And before he can utter anything else outside of, here I am, verse 5 tells us that, that do, it says this from God. He says, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you, circle, highlight, whatever you do to put notes in your Bible, that word holy that's in those verses, because this is the first time that word is ever used in the Bible. This is the first time that that word is used, and and I would love to sit here today and do this giant deep dive on holy, what it means, but um, we just don't have time for that, and it's so complex. I don't even feel adequate enough to explain it well, because it's just complex and it's beautiful, but just to make sure we're on the same page, because holy really is a more of a religious word, and I get that. The best way that I could describe holy, and I think a way that we, we might understand, is has everything to do with being sacred. We kind of use that word sometimes, sacred, meaning that we, we elevate something quite a bit, but it also, this word holy means to be sacred enough to be set apart, that it is different than anything that's around it. 
it, it's set apart, not that it's exclusive, but it's different because of its purity, because of what worth it is given. Does that make sense? That it is so different. And, and that's what we have here. It's different and it's set apart. And so what God says to Moses is, listen, the place that you're standing, this area is holy ground. So take off your shoes. This is sacred. It's set apart. The only thing that makes this spot on the mountain different from any other spot on the mountain is not that the bush is on fire. It's the fact that the presence of the Lord is there. And where the presence of the Lord is, it is a holy place. It is set apart to be different. And so Moses is being exposed to how serious God is about his presence and who he is. You take off your shoes, this is holy. You're about to step into something different right now. And Moses is getting his schooling real quick, right? This is, this is a different God than any God that I learned about in Egypt in, in my, my adopted mom's home. And when God identifies himself, he's like, listen, let me tell you who I am. I am the God of, and he starts to list the name that his nation would have known God as. In that moment, He's no longer curious, let me go touch the cactus, the fire. Mo Moses' response is fear. Oh, I've heard your stories. And he covers his face in fear. He grasps real quick what God means by this is holy, that he is different. Now, over the next couple of verses, God is going to tell Moses, listen, I have heard the cries of the Hebrew people in Egypt. I have heard about their slavery. I've heard them screaming, and I'm done with Egypt. Like, the time has come for this nation to start to enter into the promised land, the land that I promised, you know, all those guys in my name, the land that was theirs, I'm going to give them. It's time. Let's do it. And, I, and, you know, I can imagine Moses at this point like, yeah, 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 you should give them that land. That's all the way over there away from me. I got my sheep right here. And in verse 10, God lays out the bottom line for Moses. And he says, now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Wait, what? Wait, no, this was cool when you were saying you were holy. I can do no shoes. I could do this whole thing. I'll be in fear. I get, and I'm glad you hear all the cries of your people. You know my name. But wait, wait, did God just call him back now to the exact task that he tried 40 years ago and failed? When he tried to liberate his Hebrew people from an oppressive Egyptian you know, slave master, how would you respond? Seriously, pause and think about this. Have you ever failed so bad at something? Could you imagine 40 years to think about that thing? And then all of a sudden, God says, I'm going to call you back to do it again. No way. There's no way, right? Would you go back? Would you try again? Well, this is what Moses says in verse 11. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? This is the first and second time out of five different times over the next chapter and a half that Moses is going to say to God, ah, ah, I'm not your guy. And he's going to come up with excuse after excuse as to why he can't do what God's asking him to do. When I read this, I, I find it kind of humorous, to be honest with you. His issue wasn't with, so how would you plan on organizing, you know, a million people or so in the middle of the desert, this giant nation? 
His issue is actually found in the first three words of each of the questions that he asks. He says, who am I? Who am I to appear? Who, who am I to lead? Moses' eyes were on himself and what he didn't bring to the table, what he didn't have. I'm not important enough to stand before Pharaoh. I am not a leader of people. I like sheep. I'm sure that in 40 years of wandering the desert with these sheep, he's thought about this way over and over when he messed up and he failed. And when he failed, it means he's a failure and he was the worst and he's telling himself over and over. And you know when you replay that mistake in your head, it may have been a level three mistake on a level of, you know, on a scale of 10. But when you keep replaying that story by yourself over and over, soon enough, it's a five, it's a six, it's a seven, isn't it? And, and it becomes a bigger thing. And I need to tell you that in this moment, when God tells him, you're going to lead my people, I imagine that in Moses' mind, he has already disqualified himself from anything that has to do with people. Who am I? I can't do that. I've already failed in front of, you know, in that Pharaoh's home and in with these people. And these questions that he's asking, who am I to do this? Who am I to do that? These are not rooted in humility right? They could be rooted in humility like, oh, Lord, would you help me do these things? Like, I don't feel adequate to do this. I don't think these questions are rooted in humility. I think these questions that he's asking are rooted in shame. He didn't have a series of failures because in his mind, he just was a failure. But God will not let him sit in this. Check out verse 12. It says, God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign, that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. God doesn't try to build him up here, does he? God doesn't try to coddle him. He doesn't remind him about all the good things he's done over the last 80 years of his life, does he? God's answer to who am I is I will be with you. But, but God, who am I? I will be with you. But who am I to? I will be with you. It's this amazing moment where I imagine if, if God was physically present in the human body with Moses, this is the moment when he's like, but who am I? But who am I? He would grab his chin and lift his eyes to look him eye to eye and say, I know what this shame is causing you to ask. I know the things that are in your heart, but I will be with you. I know that you have felt like a foreigner, a foreigner in a foreign place all of your life that you have not fit, but things are going to look different now because I will be with you. God is encouraging him because he believes in Moses and he sees in Moses what Moses cannot see. Isn't it great that God can see in us what we can't see? Isn't it great that God sees in us what we can't and we don't? I don't think Moses understands any of this. I don't think he gets that. Remember, he's having this conversation with a literal bush that's on fire. So we, you have to keep that in mind. It's not burning up. And in response to this encouragement from God, this isn't all on your shoulders. I'm going to be going with you. Instead of Moses being like, yes, he's like, he does the thing that we all get when someone gives you a compliment that you don't really want or tells you something that you really know you need to hear but you don't want to hear and they're like, yeah, okay, thanks. And you're like, you just blow it off. 
Well, I, I think he does this here because we find again in verse 13, but Moses protested, right? He's complaining again. He's pushing back. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Moses is already playing this out in his mind. The issue now, okay, maybe it's not just me and maybe it's not just what I do in front of Pharaoh, but my issue isn't, the, my issue is the people. The people, what if I go back to the people? They've already rejected me once. What am I supposed to tell them when I go back? If I roll up saying, hey, God sent me, they're going to have some questions, God. Moses is going to push back against God three, four more times throughout this. He's going to say, but God, what if they don't believe me? What am I supposed to do? But God, what, 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 if, what if my stumble, my words are the worst? I can't do that. But what if... What if, oh, you know what, I can't, I can't. You need to choose someone else. I'm the wrong guy is his last protest to God. And these are all questions and statements that I think are rooted in shame. When the voice of shame is the loudest voice in our life, our eyes will always be on us. We will always see the worst that we bring to the table. We will never be good enough for anything. We will be dominated by fear when the voice of shame is the one that runs our life. And we will have a list of a hundred excuses, a hundred protests, a hundred reasons why we can't. And you could pick your can't, why I can't be in relationship, why I can't be used by God, why no one will ever love me, why I can't succeed at this job, why I can't do this or won't do... We've got the list already disqualifying ourselves before we ever do anything. And that is the voice of shame. That is not the voice of God. That is the voice of shame. And this voice always wants us to believe that there is something wrong with me. That it is safer for me to be isolated and alone in the desert than to risk disappointing God or disappointing people if I fail again because I'm a failure. I wonder if this second question from Moses that he asks here was intended to stump God, right? If they ask me, what's his name, then what should I tell them, right? How would you describe this whole thing you got going on burning bush? And if he could stump him, he doesn't have to do anything. It's the book of names, right? It makes sense he'd ask it. This is the response from God in verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. I love this. God knows who he is. This is not a, I'm going to stump you question. And when Moses asks him, what am I supposed to tell them if they ask your name? God has a definitive answer followed by a command on how to tell these people. This is his name. His name is I am who I am. I am. In the Hebrew, this, this, this name is, is Hayah. That's it. You go tell them, I am. I wish that I could unpack this, but I can't. 
I don't know how to describe a name that states you are. You've always been. You'll always be. I don't know what to do to explain this in any adequate way to help us as a group understand the, the bigness of a name that's like, I am. I, you could even translate it, I be, which sounds really awesome in 21st century. Like, what's your name? I be. What? Like, be what? That's right. <laughs> this is who he is. He's the I am, the great I am. And Moses, Moses can't come up with any excuses, can you, at that point? Yeah, but God, what about, no, I am. What am I supposed to tell them? Tell them I am. And if they needed the scripture, I'm going to tell them the same thing I told you to help you understand that brought you to a place of fear and you understood. I am who I am. I am who I am. And we need to pay attention deeply to verse 15 where it says, this is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Please hear me. Oh, please hear me. Let me see your eyes. God hasn't changed. We just sang that. We just sang that together. That the God of Moses, the God of Jacob, the God of Mary, the God of David, you're still the same God. And we need you as much now as they needed you then. You could do the same things now that you did then. He's the same God. He has not changed. His name is not, I will eventually. It is I am. His name is not, well, I might be. No, it's I am. It's not I was. It's I am. It's not I could be. What is it? No, what's his name? I am. This is who he is. But we name him... You might be. You could be. If I do this, then you'll do this. If I clean up, then you will. He's not, I will. He's not, I might. He is, I am. I am. Moses, if the Hebrews ask you, who sent you? You tell them, I am sent you. That I am is with you, that I am called you back to Egypt to do what I've called you to do. The same holiness that forced you to take off your shoes is going with you. Moses does not fully comprehend this, but I will tell you that in the end, he listens to the voice of I am over the voice of shame. Even when he doesn't completely understand what that's going to mean, what it's going to cost him, he came down the mountain and he stepped into a story. He said yes to a more loving God. He said yes to one who believed more in him than he believed in him. He said yes to I am and stepped into what he was destined for. And I wish that I could tell you that the rest of his stories is rainbows and, and you know, butterflies, but that doesn't happen in the desert. <laughs> like, but Jimmy, all the plagues and these, the, the, the Red Sea thing and, you know, bread every day and all these things that are, we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. Guess what? These are all born out of pain. His life is not rainbows and ponies. Time after time, we're going to see Moses in situations where this picture defines it best. Moses sitting on the back of God. Sometimes I think you believe in me more than I do, said the boy. You'll catch up. 
said the horse. You'll catch up, Moses. I don't know what voice dominates your life today. But if it's the voice of shame, you've probably already got excuses lining up right now in your head about why you could write this story off, why this is not for you. Maybe fear has your heart racing and anxiety has you spinning in this exact moment and, and you're desperately saying, Jimmy, just shut up and close this out. I need to get out of here as fast as I can because I do not believe that there is a God who believes in me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it is. You don't know what goes through my head and I need to tell you that I don't care and I don't need to know. I am knows. I am sees you. You cannot run from him. The voice of shame is going to try to pull you away from I am. When instead, the voice of God is a voice of love that says, I want to be with you in the name that he gives his son is Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you're sitting on the horse's back and you're saying, I just can't believe it, let me help your belief. You have been created in the image of God. You are an image bearer of God and deeply loved by him. And he has loved you so much that he sent his only son to this earth to live a human life so we would see the embodiment of what love looks like when it walks this earth how it sees the people who were overlooked and the oppressed, how it sees the people that everyone else says doesn't matter and has categorized as a failure that should be in the desert. Jesus sees them and says, I know your name. I know your pain. I am with you. And our sin, anything that we have done that doesn't match up with loving God and loving people, anything, was taken to the cross with a sinless Jesus who never made a mistake in his life. And the very Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, was crucified and rose again on the third day from a tomb, defeating death, the voice of shame that says you should be alone. We're no longer alone. Because when Jesus ascended and sat at the right hand of God, he told his disciples and he tells us, I'm going so that I can send you a gift, and that gift is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And if holiness means that... Where God's presence is, it's set apart. Then if you have dedicated your life to following the teachings of Jesus, if you have proclaimed with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you have been rescued, you have been saved, you follow Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are holy and holy goes with you. I know some of you are so graded right now going, no, you don't know what sin's in my life. And Jesus says, I've covered that at the cross. Lay it down. You don't have to carry it anymore. How many times will he remind Moses it's done? How many times does God have to tell you it's covered, it's done, I believe in you? He's ready to tell you one more time. And when you don't believe it, he'll tell you one more time. And one more time until eventually you catch up and you believe what he sees is that you are my child that I love and whom I'm well pleased. Go love well. What voice are you listening to today? Because of Jesus, let me just tell you, our failures don't make us failures. They remind us that we're his. They remind us of Jesus 
And we can stop today and say thank you because God sees in us what we don't. What will you believe? Which voice will you listen to this morning? As followers of Jesus, could you just imagine how much hope we could bring to the world if people, if we were the people who actually believed what God said about us? Could you imagine how much different our lives, our homes, our families, our workplaces would look? Could you imagine what it would be like if we reminded each other of what God saw in us, not the garbage that we see in each other? What if our words looked like God's words, not shame-built, but grounded in belief? How many people would want to just desperately be around what's holy? Not us, but Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. He is I am, and he is with you. Which voice will you listen to this week? As Jeremy comes to lead us in communion this morning, I just simply want to say, if you're in a place where you're thinking, this voice, all I hear is all the things wrong with me, and all I have is the excuses, and I can't stop that. I don't know what to do with it. We would love to pray for you. And, and right over here on the side where that prayer area sign is, right after service, you just come right there. We would love to just pray over you, pray with you, because we believe that God does miracles to deliver us from the voice of shame so that we can hear the voice of love. His voice is louder. You can leave here today like Moses and experience the voice of love. But that's your step. You get to make that. Would you pray with me as Jeremy comes? God, I thank you that you've never changed, that you see in us what we don't. And I confess to you, there's too many times, God, that I believe I'm that boy sitting on a horse. And I'm so grateful for art that has made me pray more this week that I would actually believe and that you would help my unbelief. <laughs> oh, help my unbelief. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move boldly in our hearts to allow us to believe in what you see. Remind us of what you see. Put ourselves around people who will remind us of what you see and to be the people who remind others of what you see. Let us be people of belief, not people of shame. People of love, not people of fear. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're gonna take communion together this morning. Um, if you did not get your little package, you came in, go ahead and stick your hand up. We'll have someone come and, and run one over to you. Um, we will have somebody. Well, yeah, Andy, thank you. So Andy will be around with that. If you are a follower of Jesus or if you've been with us and we've taken communion you know, every week, you've probably heard the words of Jesus at the Last Supper a number of times. And I know I've read them and I've, I've uh, heard them very often. But this morning it just really, really struck me that I am is embedded in this. So real quick, I'm going to read in Luke 22. It says, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying, This, this is my body broken for you, being broken for you. The present is there. I am is there. It hasn't happened yet, but he's saying this is happening. This is right now. 
And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a reminder that he is present. He is that not only the I am of the present, but the past and the future as well. And he does, he says, in the same way he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is telling them, he is, I am. His sacrifice hadn't been made yet, but it, it was. Because he knew it was coming. He was the God of the present, but he's the God of the future. He's the God of the past. He is the same God. So this morning as we take communion together, let's just remember Jesus' words. It is given to us. It's being given to us. His body is broken for us today, not just 2,000 years ago. It's broken for us and given to us every day, every moment. His sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice. It's always there and present for us. His grace is always there for us. So right now, you take out the wafer, his body, and take it together. And drink the cup together. Lord, thank you that you are the God that is, that was, and is to come. That, Lord, when we don't measure up, when we don't know who we are, you know who we are, Lord. And that your grace is sufficient for yesterday, today, and forever for us, Lord. Thank you for being the I am that we can lean on and rest in. In your heavenly name.